0: All right, morning everyone again. If you've got your Bibles this morning, we're going to start John chapter 20, and we'll hopefully get about halfway through. So last week we saw Jesus crucified and laid in a tomb, and this week we celebrate the resurrection. So just like the people celebrated when the high priest came out alive from the Holy of Holies on the day of Yom Kippur, knowing that their sins were covered for another year, so, too, we rejoice because Jesus emerged alive from the tomb. But we don't rejoice just because our sins have been covered for another year, but our sins have been removed for ever. So, our great high priest has gone into the heavenly Holy of Holies and he put his own blood on the mercy seat. And remember, the word for mercy seat in the New Testament is propitiation. Well done. Yes, so Jesus is our propitiation. He is the payment for our sins. He has appeased the wrath of God. And because of that, guess what? Psalm 103, verses 11 and 12, it says, For as the heavens are high above the earth, so great is his mercy toward those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, So far has he removed our transgressions from us. That's what happened at the cross. Because of this, Paul was able to write in Romans chapter 8, verse 1, So now there is no condemnation for those who belong to Christ Jesus. So because of what Christ has done, he's paid our fine. We are free, we are innocent, we have right standing with God. The law has no hold on us anymore. So let's pray, then we'll read. Father, thank you for this. Awesome day. It's Resurrection Sunday and we're talking about the resurrection. So I pray that our hearts will just be joyful, Lord, as we realize the victory that's been won. The salvation that's been gained for all mankind if they choose to accept. So we just thank you for these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So let's just start reading in John chapter 20 and we'll read up to verse 22. So, and the other disciple, and were going to the tomb. So they both ran together, and the other disciple outran Peter, and came to the tomb first. And he, stooping down and looking in, saw the linen cloths lying there, yet he did not go in. And Simon Peter came, following him, and went into the tomb, and he saw the linen cloths lying there, and the handkerchief that had been around his head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded together in a place by itself. The other disciple, who came to the tomb first, went in also, and he saw and believed, for as yet they did not know the scripture, that he must rise again from the dead. Then the disciples went away again to their own homes. But Mary stood outside by the tomb, weeping, and as she wept, she stooped down and looked into the tomb. Whom are you seeking? She, supposing him to be the gardener, said to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned and said to him, Rabboni, which is to say, Teacher. Jesus said to her, Do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to my father, but go to my brethren and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, and to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene came and told the disciples that she had seen the Lord and that he had spoken these things to her. Then, the same day at evening, being the first day of the week, when the doors were shut, where the disciples were assembled for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood in the midst and said to them, Peace be with you. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. So Jesus said to them again, Peace to you, as the Father has sent me, I also send you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. So that's as far as I think we're going to get today. Now, verse 1. Now, on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb early while it was still dark. Now, She wasn't the only woman there. Other Gospels tell us that there was another three women. But in John's Gospel, it focuses on Mary Magdalene. And we'll find out why in a minute. Who was the last person at the cross? Well, one of the last people at the cross. Yeah, John and Mary. So Mary Magdalene was at the cross. She stayed there to the very last. What's her history? Do you remember her history? She had been possessed by seven demons previously, but the Lord freed her, and from that time on she followed him with all of her heart. I love them that love me, and they that seek me early shall find me. Proverbs chapter 8, verse 17. That's what the Lord says. So, how are your and my morning devotions. Mary Magdalene is going to be the first one to see the resurrected Jesus, simply because she was at the tomb early in the morning. So, if we're seeking the Lord, as one of our songs just said, he will reveal himself to us. And in our house, we try and put into practice what Job says in chapter 23, verse 12. He says, I have not departed from his commands, but have treasured his words more than daily food. So the slogan in our house is, no read, no feed. So Bible comes first. The spiritual appetite must be satisfied before the physical. And continuing in verse 1, and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. Then she ran and came to Simon Peter and to the other disciple whom Jesus loved and said to them, so who is this other disciple that we keep hearing about? Yes, John. He's talking about himself in third person. It's just a humble way of describing what's happened. They have taken away the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. So the we is the other women. Peter therefore went out, and the other disciple, and we're going to the tomb. Now, Peter and John found together at this point, what's just happened with Peter? He's denied the Lord. He's literally calling down curses. He's swearing oaths that he didn't know Jesus, and Jesus is right there looking at him. So the temptation is for us to respond to our brothers and sisters who have failed, who have fallen, who have stumbled. Oh, brother, I'm so disappointed in you. You know, you boasted. Even if I have to die with you, I will never. Deny you, and what did you do? You denied him, you know, but he didn't do that. What characterizes John the Apostle? What is he known as? The Apostle of Love, yeah. So later in life, he just, you know, his main message was God is love, love the Lord. And here, John the Apostle of Love takes Peter into his home and into his heart not knowing exactly how the events would unfold. So Peter, he was weeping, he was broken. Yes, he had stumbled, he had fallen, but he was repentant. He was sorry for what he had done. And John comes alongside and helps him and brings him back. He encourages him. And that's what we need to do to each other as well. So when a person has stumbled and they've made It could be a really serious mistake, and they're repentant and they're sorry for what they've done, like Peter wept bitterly. Receive them back into the fold. Verse 4 So they both ran together, and the other disciple outran Peter and came to the tomb first. So Peter in church history is called the giant. He's a big guy, big, buffy, you know, muscular guy, fisherman. John was only probably 17 when Jesus called him. And now he's probably about 20. Remember, he lived quite old because the book of Revelation was given at the end of that century and John was still alive. So at this point, he's only a young guy, maybe 20 years old. So he's fit and he's healthy. He gets there first. Peter catches up. And he, stooping down and looking in, saw the linen cloth lying there, yet he did not go in. So John gets to the tomb first, but he doesn't rush in. Verse 6. Then Simon Peter came following him and went into the tomb and he saw the linen cloth lying there and the handkerchief that had been around his head not lying with the linen cloth but folded together in a place by itself then the other disciple who came to the tomb first went in also and he saw and believed so if you've stolen a body it's very unlikely you're going to take away the piece of cloth that went around his head and put it somewhere you know just nice and neat So this is evidence that the body probably wasn't stolen. And it says in verse 8, then the other disciple who came to the tomb first went in also, he saw, and believed. Now it's interesting, what do they believe? Because in verse 9 it says, for as yet they did not know the scripture, or understand the scripture, that he must rise again from the dead. So there's the beginning of belief. There's this understanding that something's happened, but they're still not quite sure what's happened. Now, there's a, a sequence of words here in verses 5, 6 and 8. The word saw or see is used. So, first John came to the tomb and saw the linen cloth lying. And the word translated saw is blepo, meaning to look at, to see visibly. In verse 6, Peter saw the linen cloth lying there and used the word therio, meaning to study more carefully. And we get our word theory from that word. And finally, in verse 8, the word translated saw is Ido, E-I-D-O, from which we get the word idea or I get it. So you see something, you start to think about it, and then you understand it. So our faith progresses according to this pattern. First, we're exposed to teaching from the word of God. You hear what the person is saying, and then you... You give it some more insight as you look at it yourself, and you and you meditate on it. And finally, there comes that moment when you really get it, and it's not just a concept theologically, but it's a part of your life personally. You've actually apply it to yourself. So, it's really important that we expose ourselves to the Word of God and actually see it for the first time, and then we meditate on it, and we theorize. Or you know, that's the the, the Greek word there. But we we think about it, and then we come to that full understanding where we put it into practice. It'll become a part of you. So verse 9. For as yet they did not know the scripture that he must rise again from the dead, then the disciples went away to their own homes. And as I said, I'm wondering what they're believing, but their belief is not yet full blossomed or fully comprehended that in this, intermediate stage of understanding this doctrine of the resurrection and i've just got a quote from chuck smith it's called hearing problem this is an application for us when peter and john saw the burial garments of jesus left as if his body had dematerialized out of them they believed for as yet they did not know the scripture that he must rise again from the dead this shows the blindness of preconceived ideas Jesus had told his followers repeatedly that he would die and rise from the dead. Yet when you don't want to hear something, you can just block it out of your mind. They wanted to see Jesus coming in his glory to establish his kingdom, and they just didn't catch on to what he was saying about death and the resurrection. It is so important for us to hear everything God is saying to us, and not just what we want to hear or what we expect to hear. So that was a quote from Chuck Smith from his study Bible. Verse 11. But Mary stood outside by the tomb weeping and as she wept she stooped down and looked into the tomb and she saw two angels in white sitting one at the head and the other at the feet where the body of Jesus had lain. Then they said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? And then... Mary was so excited to see all the angels that she wrote a book called I Saw Angels and Made Lots of Money. No. Mary is so engrossed in her love for the Lord that she doesn't really care about angels. She's not caught up in other things, no matter how spectacular or how so-called supernatural, you know. So the angels are there. She's not really impressed by them. She just wants to know where Jesus is. Her focus is Jesus, and that's what we should be like too. And the next part of verse 13 is awesome. It says, She said to them, Because they have taken away my Lord, my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. Basically, Jesus is all that matters to me. He is the most important part of my life. Now, when she had said this, she turned around. If you go through other parts of the Bible, what are they doing? They're bowing down, trying to worship them. They're falling down as if they're dead. There's all kinds of responses generally like that. But Mary, she's so caught up with her grief about her Lord that she's not even worried about those things. And it's sad that she was there when Jesus told them about the resurrection, but she still doesn't understand it either. She still thinks the corpse has been stolen. Now, verse 14, the second part, and she saw Jesus standing there and did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? She, supposing him to be the gardener, said to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him and I will take him away. So, Mary, a woman, is basically saying, it's okay, just tell me where he is and I'll carry him back. Can you imagine a woman carrying a grown man, a dead grown man, back into the tomb? How difficult that would be. It's very difficult to pick up a corpse that's not agreeing with you and not cooperating with you. So when you do unconscious people, you know, simulated rescues, it's very difficult to pick them up. So... Love bears all things, 1 Corinthians 13.7. There was nothing too difficult for Mary to do when it came to Jesus. She didn't see the problem. She just thought, I need to do this. This is what I want to do for the Lord. And going back a little bit, she didn't recognize Jesus. Well, for us, Jesus comes through the unexpected person at the unexpected time in the unexpected place. God reveals himself to us through a brother or sister, or through a family member or friend, sometimes in their morning devotions. But so often, like Mary, our eyes are so filled with tears and we're so you know, caught up with our own feelings and our own emotions that we don't even recognize that it's the Lord speaking to us. Jesus said to her, Mary. So her eyes are full of tears. She's crying and weeping. Mary hears his voice. Now what does John chapter 4 say? My sheep hear my voice. So we too should be able to recognize when God speaks to us. We are his sheep, we should hear his voice. She turned and said to him, Rabboni, which is to say, teacher. Jesus said to her, do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to my father. Now, Jesus is not saying to Mary, don't touch me. In the Greek, the way it's constructed, it means to stop an action already begun rather than to avoid starting it. So she was already hugging him or holding on to his feet, whatever she was doing. But she was holding on and not wanting to let go. So we get a couple of things from this. The resurrection body of Jesus, he wasn't a ghost. You could actually hold on to him, he was physical. What we'll find out later, that he could walk through walls, and so he wasn't a human body with the same chemical composition that we have, but still a physical body nonetheless, just a spiritual physical body made for the heavenly realms. And I've got another quote about Mary Magdalene here. Mary Magdalene had a deep love for Jesus. He had delivered her from the horror of demon possession and had changed her life completely. Now Jesus had died, and she was intent on finding his body when she ran into him in the garden. She didn't recognize him at first, in the dawn's early light, and as she looked through her tear-filled eyes, but when he called her name, there was no mistaking it. Here he was, and Mary grabbed onto him and just wouldn't let go. She had a death grip round his neck. Her attitude was probably, you got away from me once, but you'll never get away from me again. I don't know what she's thinking. He told her to stop hanging on to him and go and tell the disciples the good news of the resurrection and that he would soon be ascending back to his Father in heaven. A good perspective there. and We're going to come back to the verse probably next week. So, but go to my brethren, it says in verse 17. Earlier on in John fifteen fifteen, he said, I do not call you servants, but friends. Here he takes it a step further. He calls them brothers. And Hebrews chapter 2 verse 11 says, He is not ashamed to call us brothers as well. We are brothers with Christ, sons of the Father. 17 again, And say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Here's a quote from the rabbis. It is better that the words of the law be burned than to be entrusted to a woman. I read it again. It is better that the words of the law be burned than to be entrusted to a woman. Talk to the rabbis. So what does Jesus do? He gives the gospel first to a woman. Isn't that awesome? Mary's love for the Lord and her devotion to Him qualified her to be the first missionary with the full story. So women are very important. And God will use women just as much as he uses men, just in a different role. So, you know, we've been looking at missionaries in the Torchlighter series with our kids, and some of those women missionaries are much braver than me. And they've done much more harder things than I could ever imagine doing. So if God is empowering you, if God is behind it, then you can do anything. This also argues for the historic truth of this account. If someone had fabricated the story, there's no way that they would use women as the first witness because they would be in that culture regarded as an unreliable witness. Does that make sense? So, oh, that's stupid because you can't trust a woman anyway. That's their culture. But Jesus, he chooses to do this. So Jesus is pointing out a difference between his relationship with God. So when he says, your God, my God, etc. Jesus is pointing out a difference between his relationship with God and the disciples' relationship with God. So he doesn't say, God is our Father. He says he's my Father and your Father. So, a little quote from Augustine. In one sense, he is mine. In another sense, he is yours. God is his Father by nature. So Jesus and the Father are together by nature. But God is our Father by grace. We weren't always in that relationship, but Jesus always was. My God under whom I also am as a man, your God, between whom and you and I am a mediator. So Jesus came as a man, subject to the Father, to do his will. He Humbled himself as a servant. And he is a mediator between us and God, the Father. So verse 18. Mary Magdalene came and told the disciples that she had seen the Lord and that he had spoken these things to her. Then, the same day at evening, being the first day of the week, when the doors were shut, where the disciples were assembled for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood in the midst and said to them, Peace be with you. Now, there's five appearances of Jesus on Resurrection Day. So on this Sunday, Jesus appears to people five times. But only two of them are recorded in John. But just to let you know what the five are, there's Mary Magdalene at the tomb and the women. There's the two on the road to Emmaus, to Peter and here to the ten of the disciples, and Thomas being absent. Now, when the doors were shut, how did Jesus get in? He just appeared inside. So, he could eat, be held, touched, but he could also walk through walls. So, when we get our glorified body, we will have capabilities of doing things that we cannot imagine at the moment. It's going to be awesome. You won't be getting sick. You won't be getting hurt. If you fall over, you're not going to scratch your knee. All these things. There's going to be an awesome body. You won't need to sleep. Isn't that good? You won't get tired. Fantastic. So here are the disciples, scared, and then Jesus just appears. They've got questions. There's confusion, there's people saying he's risen again, but they don't believe. And then Jesus appears with them. And what does he say to them? Shalom, peace. He doesn't say, you guys are busted, where have you been? I've been on the cross and you're running around pretending like you don't even know me. What's the big idea? No, that's not what Jesus does. He comes to them and says, peace. And that's what he says to us. So his first words to them are, shalom, peace. Now, what does the Bible say about that? Romans chapter 5, verses 1 and 2. Therefore, since we have been made right in God's sight, that's justified, never sinned, by faith, we have peace with God because of what Jesus Christ our Lord has done for us. Because of our faith, Christ has brought us into this place of undeserved privilege or grace, where we now stand, and we confidently and joyfully look forward to sharing God's glory. We now have peace because of what Christ has done for us. And we stand in grace by faith. So verse 20, When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. So he's giving them assurance. He's giving them, this is proof that I am the Messiah. I did die and now I am alive from the dead. So here we are with the disciples and why would you be glad if the Lord is amongst you? Well, if someone died Jesus brings them back to life with the simple word. If you're hungry well a few loaves could feed thousands and his provision was abundant and his presence was a delight. So Being around Jesus, being in his presence, brings joy. So for us today, we will find our delight, our gladness, our joy as we spend time in the presence of the Father. So Jesus said to them again, Peace to you. As the Father has sent me, I also send you. So Jesus is giving his disciples a mission to continue his work on this earth. And we're going to read what the mission is next week but first he says to them in verse 22 and when he had said this he breathed on them and said to them receive the holy spirit so based on the scriptures as i say here the disciples are born again they have the spirit in them they're already following jesus but they were not yet regenerated because before the cross he had not yet died for their sins but here jesus breathes on them And it reminds us of Genesis chapter 2 verse 7 when God breathed life into Adam's nostrils and he became a living soul. And this is a description of the new birth that's described in John chapter 3. And uh, I've got a quote for us. It says, Receive the Holy Spirit. As Jesus breathed on his disciples and said, Receive the Holy Spirit, they were receiving the second part of the threefold relationship of the believer with the Holy Spirit. I'm going to go through that a bit later on. In John 14, verses 16 and 17, Jesus told them that the Holy Spirit would be sent to them as a helper. He told them, He dwells with you and will be in you. So the Holy Spirit had already been with them, but Jesus said that in the future He would be in them. Then in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, Jesus said, But you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. So the Holy Spirit was always with them as He is everywhere. Now the Holy Spirit Came into them as Jesus breathed on them. This was a spiritual birth, as I experienced the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. And on the day of Pentecost, as the Spirit would be poured out on them, they would experience the power that comes on a believer for service. So, if you have never before accepted Jesus Christ as your Savior, the Holy Spirit is with you. He is the one who draws you to God and convicts you of sin. If you have accepted Jesus then the Holy Spirit is inside of you. But he wants to come upon you as well to give you the power to live the Christian life and serve him in a fruitful way. Don't stop short of all that God has for you. Ask for the power of the Spirit to come upon you and to stay upon you. So, let's start with the three prepositions, with, in, and upon. So, with, what does the Spirit do? In John sixteen eight to 11 the Spirit convicts the world of sin. Of righteousness and judgment, it's fairly simple, straightforward. the spirit in us well, we are sealed by the Holy Spirit, we have become one with God, we are a part of his family, and that's something that can never be undone and I've got some verses just to look up here romans eight sixteen for his spirit joins with our spirit to affirm that we are God's children, so he's joining with our spirit, and 2 corinthians one twenty one and twenty two it is God who enables us, along with you, to stand firm for Christ. He has commissioned us, and he has identified us as his own by placing the Holy Spirit in our hearts as a first installment that guarantees everything he has promised us. And that same verse in the New King James. Now he who establishes us with you in Christ and has anointed us is God, who also has Sealed us and given us the Spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. And one more just to emphasize this, the Spirit in us and this purpose for this. Ephesians chapter 1 verses 13 to 14. And now you Gentiles have also heard the truth, the good news that God saves you. And when you believed in Christ, he identified you as his own by giving you the Holy Spirit, whom he promised long ago. The Spirit is God's guarantee that he will give us the inheritance he promised and that he has purchased us to be his own people. He did this so we would praise and glorify him. So in those times, they would have a signet ring and it would have like a symbol on it and that was your symbol, your family symbol. And if you owned something, you would put some wax on it, seal it, and put your ring on that warm wax and then it would solidify and. It was yours, people knew it was yours because it had your seal on it. So if you were sending someone, something, a passport to somewhere, that was your ownership, that was your sign of ownership. And it was against the law. There'd be consequences to take something that didn't belong to you. And the guarantee that the down payment, the deposit, is like a lay-by. So you go to the shop and you say, I want that. And they say, that's fine. So you put a down payment on it. And it's yours. I put it in the back of the shop. No one else can buy it. It's yours. So God has identified us as his own by giving us the Holy Spirit. And the Spirit in us is the down payment. It's, we're on lay-by, so to speak. Now, how does that work practically? Well, positionally, we have been justified. Our spirit is right with God. Sanctification, that's an ongoing process that will be complete later when we go to be with the lord and our body our future new body that hasn't happened yet so there's this is like this lay by process where god has paid the first bit and he's done part of the work well it's all finished at the cross but the process that he takes us through is not finished yet okay christ completes what he has begun so that's the purpose of the spirit in us it identifies us as being his and it is a guarantee that God will finish the work that he has started in us. Now we move on to the third one, so we've covered with, in, and now we go upon. So first verse we want to look at is Ephesians five eighteen. It says, Don't be drunk with wine, because that rule in your life, instead be filled with the Holy Spirit. Now this be filled with the Holy Spirit is a continuing action. Continue to be filled with the Spirit. And it's different to the indwelling of the Holy Spirit or the Holy Spirit in us because that's a one-off and permanent event that happens the moment we are saved. We can't continue to have the Spirit come in us because He's already there. We've already been sealed. And interesting, this is a side note, Paul gives this scripture in Ephesians right before he starts talking about family, husbands, how to love your wives as Christ loved the church, and wives, how to submit to your husbands as unto Christ difficult things so you need to be filled with the spirit to be able to do what paul is asking you to do there so speaking to believers this is the power of the spirit upon us romans chapter 8 verse 2 and then 5 and 6 and then 12 and 13 just selected verses to keep it short and because you belong to him the power of the life-giving Spirit has freed you from the power of the sin that leads to death. So what it is it? It's the power of the Spirit has freed us. Moving on to verse 5. Those who are dominated by the sinful nature think about sinful things, but those who are controlled by the Holy Spirit think about things that please the Spirit. So letting, the choice, letting your sinful nature control your mind leads to death, but letting the Spirit control your mind leads to life and peace. And then verse 12 and 13. Therefore, dear brothers and sisters, you have no obligation to do what your sinful nature urges you to do. For if you live by its dictates, you will die. That means you will have a hard life. And it will damage your relationship with the Lord. But if through the power of the Spirit you put to death the deeds of your sinful nature, you will live. So it's not talking about eternal life, eternal death. You're already saved. You're already in God's family. You're identified as his. But you can have a nasty life. You can make some bad choices, you can ruin your own life. So as believers, we have been sealed by the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is in us. But we are not always walking in the power of the Spirit. We are not always being controlled by the Spirit. We are not always allowing Christ to live his life through us, as Paul says in Galatians 2.20. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. So, being filled with the Spirit means that we are empowered by God to do God's work in this world. It's Christ living his life through me. It's the power of God enabling me to be the person that God has created me to be in Christ. And Romans 6 makes this even clearer. I'm just going to read that one to you as well. Romans six twelve to 16 Do not let sin control the way you live. Do not give in to sinful desires. Do not let any part of your body become an instrument of evil to serve sin. Instead, give yourselves completely to God, for you were dead, but now you have new life. So use your body as an instrument to do what is right for the glory of God. Sin no longer your master, for you no longer live under the requirements of the law. Instead, you live under the freedom of God's grace. Well then, since God's grace has set us free from the law, does that mean that we can go on sinning? Of course not. Don't you realize that you become the slave of whatever you choose to obey? You can be a slave to sin, which leads to death, or you can choose to obey God, which leads to righteous living. So when the Bible uses death in these contexts, it's the opposite of righteous living. So, did you notice the word choice there? Don't you realize that you become the slaves of whoever you choose to obey? So again, we have a choice to live for God or live for ourselves. And I like this verse in Romans 6. It says, "He gives us a hint of what this is all about, being filled with the Spirit. What it means to be filled with the Spirit. It says, instead, give yourselves completely to God. We have to humble ourselves. We have to submit to God. What does James say in James 4, verse 7? Therefore, submit to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. So what do we have to do first to have victory over the enemy? We have to first submit to God. So the devil won't flee until we are first fully submitted to God. If we're living according to our sinful nature, relying on ourselves, we will fail eventually. And if you look at the times in the New Testament when people were filled with the Holy Spirit, they were always submitting themselves to God, worshipping or seeking to worship God. Their mindset was to please God and not themselves. So they had made the decision to live for God and to honour Him. And you know the story of Acts chapter 1, I'm not going to read the whole thing, but a couple of snippets, they all met together and were constantly united in prayer. That's 1 verse 14 and then 2 verse 4, and everyone present was filled with the Holy Spirit. That's when the tongues of fire and etc. And here is an example which is after Pentecost, after Peter and John had healed the laymen in the temple, had been threatened by the Jewish leaders and told not to preach in the name of Jesus. So this is Acts four twenty three to 24 and 29-31. to It says, As soon as they were freed, Peter and John returned to the other believers and told them what the leading priests and elders had said. When they heard the report, all the believers lifted their voices together in prayer to God. And now, this is what they prayed, And now, O Lord, hear their threats, and give us, your servants, great boldness in preaching your word. Stretch out your hand with healing power. May miraculous signs and wonders be done through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. After this prayer, the meeting place shook, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. Then they preached the word of God with... Boldness, okay? So, notice three things here. The submission to God. Prayer. Prayer is the picture of our dependence on God. When we pray and we're asking, we have to humble ourselves because it's a way of saying, I can't do this myself. I need your help. What did they want to do? The first thing they asked for, the main thing they asked for there is, give us, your servants, great boldness in preaching your word. And then they continued, but For us, give us great boldness in preaching your word. Now, did they say, fill us with your Holy Spirit? No, they said, give us great boldness. Now, they recognized where their power came from. They didn't have to say, fill us with your spirit. But the Bible says that they were filled with the Holy Spirit and then they could do what they had asked God to give them the power to do. Okay, so we don't have to use those words. It's not a magic formula. Fill me with the Holy Spirit. I think it's better to be specific. We can say something like, Lord, fill me with your spirit so I can love my wife as Christ loved the church. Or we could say, instead of fill me with your spirit, please enable me or empower me to love my wife as Christ loved the church. Or we could just simply pray, God, please give me the strength to love my wife as Christ loved the church. Language doesn't matter. It's the heart that counts. And the result, God working effectively through them in many different ways, but always preaching the word of God with boldness. And this is also what Paul prayed for in Ephesians 6.19. It says, And pray for me too. Ask God to give me the right words so I can boldly explain God's mysterious plan that the good news is for Jews and Gentiles alike. So if we want to properly and effectively represent Christ to our families, to our friends, to the lost world around us, then we need the empowering of the Holy Spirit. We need that that dynamite power. We need to recognize our weakness and seek his strength. And this is what this is all about, just to keep it simple. And I'm going to just finish with Luke 11. Actually, two more scriptures to read. So this is the second last one. Luke 11, 9 to 13. It says, and so I tell you, keep on asking. In the New King James it says, ask and you will receive. The New Living expands on this. It says, and so I tell you, keep on asking and you will receive what you ask for. Keep on seeking and you will find. Keep on knocking and the door will be open to you. For everyone who asks, receives. Everyone who seeks, finds. And to everyone who knocks, the door will be opened. You fathers, if your children ask for a fish, do you give them a snake instead? Or if they ask for an egg, do you give them a scorpion? Of course not. So if you sinful people know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask Him? So if you're struggling to love your wife sacrificially or submit to your husband as unto Christ, or to raise your kids as unto the Lord, or... You're struggling to have boldness to share the gospel, or you're struggling with that relationship with that unsafe person at work and they're really grinding. Um, you know, it's difficult to get along with them, or you've got this sin that you're really struggling with, then ask God for help and continue asking God for help. Not just once, but keep on doing it. You might not get an instant answer, but God is asking us. To exercise our faith and to keep on asking. Don't give up. There's the woman, the finishing woman. I'm not going to go into it now, but you can look it up later. And, you know, he basically ignored her. And at the end of it, he said, Great is your faith, because she didn't give up on asking. She knew the only place she could find what she needed was in Christ or from Christ, and she didn't stop. And so she kept on asking. So God is strengthening your faith and building your character as you learn to depend on him. Now, this is important. Listen to this. God may not change your situation, but he will change you. I'll say it again. God may not change your situation, but he will change you. And I think the best example of this is found in 2 Corinthians twelve eight to 10 and it's Paul's example where... Paul said, take this trial away from me, and God says, no. So I'm going to read it from the Amplified Version, and then the New Living, and then we'll pray. So the Amplified, to 2 Corinthians twelve eight to 10 says, Three times I called upon the Lord and besought him about this and begged that it might depart from me. But he said to me, My grace, my favor and loving kindness and mercy is enough for you, sufficient against any danger, and enables you to bear the trouble manfully. For my strength and power are made perfect, fulfilled and completed, and show themselves most effective in your weakness. Therefore I will all the more gladly glory in my weaknesses and infirmities, that the strength and power of Christ the Messiah may rest, yes, may pitch a tent over and dwell upon me. So for the sake of Christ, I am well pleased and take pleasure in infirmities, insults, hardships, persecution, perplexities, and distresses. For when I am weak in human strength, then I am truly strong, able, powerful, in divine strength. It's pretty clear, isn't it? And I like it. It says that the power of Christ may rest upon us. It's like putting a tent over us. It's his protection over us. It's his covering over us to. Give us what we need to live. He doesn't tell us to do something, not give us the power. His commands are his promises. I'm just going to read that verse in the New Living, and then we'll pray. So it says, Three different times I begged the Lord to take it away. Each time he said, My grace is all you need. My power works best in weakness. So now I am glad to boast about my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ can work through me. That's why I take pleasure in my weaknesses and in the insults, hardships, persecutions, and troubles that I suffer for Christ. For when I am weak, then I am strong. So Christ said, breathe to them, receive the Holy Spirit, they're safe, but they're not empowered yet. He said, wait in Jerusalem to be empowered so I can send you out and you can be my ambassadors. Told them what to do, but he hadn't empowered them yet. But he had identified them as his own. Father, thank you for your great love, which you have for us. Thank you that you haven't left us here unequipped, with no strength. Lord, you've given us abundant strength. You've given us abundant power. And those verses in Ephesians that God can do exceedingly abundantly above all that we can ask or imagine. Lord, you are an awesome God. Lord, you're just waiting for us to humble ourselves and to ask you to help us. Lord, guide us, give us wisdom in what we should do. And once we know what we should do, help us to depend on your strength to do it. So we just pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.